in this episode of The Ziggler Show. The way I interpret secrets of closing the sale are a series of technologies and thoughts about how you can help people overcome their resistance to change so that they can get what they wanted all along. And we know, it's really easy to do the technology now, we know that before people say yes to something that they haven't purchased before, their heart rate goes up. They get nervous. That in a B2B setting, it's one of the scariest things that can ever happen is for you to spend somebody else's money to buy something for your company. It's not even your money. But you get scared because it comes with it the possibility of failure. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, a top-ranked all-time career podcast in Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. In this show, we expound on Zig Ziggler's be, do, and have philosophy, meaning you have to be the right kind of person, then do the right things before you can expect to have what really matters in life. And we want you to have what matters. Also, check out my podcast, What Drives You, where we talk with people who have reached impressive achievements to ask what drove them, good and bad. And we dig into the very motives that drive us all with the goal of clarifying just what is driving you. Then in my True Life podcast, we want to get you fully functioning physically so your body doesn't hold you back. You can find all three of my shows in Apple Podcasts. Just search for Kevin Miller or go to my website, kevinmiller.co. And if you're new to The Ziggler Show, I invite you to visit ziggler.com. Connect with Tom Ziggler and the Ziggler family about upcoming events and how they can come alongside you and help you inspire your true performance. Today, we are back with Seth Godin. He is one of the premier voices of business in our generation. He's known for his innovative thinking and insight into what I'd cite as business and vocational reform, in essence. He's a true leader in that he's attracted a massive following of the business world who look to him daily for commentary on what's most relevant for successful business practices and ethics that we can all benefit most from. He was one of the first people Tom Ziegler and I tapped to join us on The Ziegler Show after I became host and revived the show because he's one of Zig Ziegler's greatest fans. And the point is not to glorify Zig, but to hear Seth Godin talk about why the core tenets of morals and values and personal relationship skills and best business practices that Zig upheld are still what is most important for our success in today's marketplace, a marketplace that changes daily, but the principles do not. So coming up is Seth Godin and why he sees his legacy as you and me. Well, yes, Seth. Thank you immensely for giving yourself today to us and the Ziegler Show. Uh, it's a significant honor to uh, see you over Skype right now. And I'm just uh, so honored to bring you to our audience. Thank you. Well, it is a privilege. It's a beautiful rainy day here in New York, and I couldn't imagine doing anything better than this. <laughs> Seth, I just want to say, uh, like Kevin, thank you for coming uh, I've followed your words for years, and I always look for the zig clues that you put, and it always gives me just a smile to see that. Uh, I'm blessed because so many people were impacted by Dad, and now many of those people are impacting me, and you're one of them. So it's just great to have you on the Ziggler Show. Well, I'll tell you a little aside. Um, my son's been listening to a bunch of zig lately, and he said, Dad, 
you've been stealing Zig stuff my whole life. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Okay, Zig clues. Perfect place to, to, to start here. Uh, Seth, as I do with every person that we interview on the show, first thing I do in preparing for it is type their name in and then type Ziggs into a search engine and just see what I find. And I don't think I have ever found as much content regarding Zig as I did when I typed in your names together. And specifically just um, some testimony that really interested me and I want to dive into at the beginning. I got this literally off of some search pages. It said, uh, this is you writing, 20 years ago when my business was flatlining, Zig spoke up for hours and hours every day in the car on cassettes that literally melted from overuse. Zig poked and prodded and encouraged and mostly called my bluff. I remember the long drive home from yet another failed sales call an hour or two that could have been spent planning on how I was going to quit. Instead, Zig was helping me plan how I was going to stick it out. Then, same page, I think. This was a blog of yours, out of a blog, in 2013. And you cited, uh, you said, when I was starting out on my own, success was not around the corner or even in sight. For years, I was flirting on the edge of failure. I was thrown out of sales calls, rejected by just about every organization I approached, and was pretty stuck. More than once, I considered giving up the entire entrepreneur thing. Uh, one of the key factors in both surviving this time and figuring out how to shift gears was my exposure to, as we called them then, books on tape, particularly the work of Zig Ziglar. I listened for sometimes hours every day. I've been grateful for Zig ever since that day and still listen regularly. So to those of us who have been following you for as long as I can remember and view you as uh, Yoda of business insight and wisdom, it's almost hard to envision you being thrown out of sales calls. I mean, that's an interesting line. And so two questions. First one, uh, when were you first, uh, literally the first time made aware of Zig Ziglar and did you take to him and his message and perspective right away? Well, first I want to challenge the Yoda thing because he's a funny looking short bald guy. Oh, <laughs> I guess the Yoda thing might work. Anyway, sorry. Um, I think my dad found Zig a couple days before me, probably... I want to just guess 1985-ish, 84, somewhere in there. Um, you know, my dad, who passed away recently, was a spectacular guy, a pillar of his community. But uh, he also, like me, uh, was very open and into self-improvement. He would uh, read books, listen to things in the car, etc. Some of the stuff was nutty, political stuff that I won't get into, but a lot of it was things that like this, Nightingale Conant type stuff. Mm -hmm. And once I had just a little thread of it, I just kept pulling it. Uh, and I think I probably got most of the stuff right away. At the beginning, uh, I was certainly blown away by the accent, uh, but he more than overcame that, for me, Buffalo, New York, strangeness by his ability to create tension at will. To lower his voice, look the person right in the eye and tell them something that would change them. And that ability to use just the voice and the confidence and the enthusiasm to change the setting connected so much of his work as an execution tool that it enabled me to get past some of the, you know, wariness that a New Yorker might have about self-improvement and let it work for me. You mentioned your dad, and I'm going to do an offshoot from my 
intended trajectory to ask about that. Tom and I talk a lot about our fathers. Um, obviously, we know Tom's father. Uh, my father introduced me to Zig and has been an incredible influence in my life. How did your dad equip you? Obviously, he was exposing you to such things. Do you give him a lot of credit for equipping you to do what you do today? Well, first, I want to say uh, your dad's an email correspondent of mine. He says hi, and uh, you're lucky to have him, and uh, vice versa. Uh, amen. Thank you. Uh, my dad and my mom uh, were living proof that it's possible to win the parent lottery, because I did. Wow. And uh, he taught me mostly about respect, about not the kind of obvious respect of the parent, but respect of the community, respect for possibility, uh, respect for using uh, the advantages that each of us get uh, to maybe uh, make a difference. So I was uh, super lucky to have both of them in my life. Thank you. Uh, and thanks for the call out to my dad, Dan Miller. I'll do that a couple of times during this because I give him a lot of credit for leading me to people like you. Uh, so second part of that question, though, where you're testifying, where I found those testimonies from you on the hard times that you were in and Zig pulling you out, what was happening during those literal times? What's the real story of you being thrown out of a sales call uh, that we, I don't tend to uh, have that perception of you? Well, I'm, I guess I'm glad I, you don't have that perception of me. The, uh, you know, I was a bootstrapping entrepreneur. I wrote a an ebook, a book that became an ebook that's free online. People can go find it called the Bootstrapper's Bible. And the magic of bootstrapping is starting a business with no money. Uh, what it means to be a bootstrapper then is you need customers who so care about what you might build for them that they will pay you in advance. And uh, I was a book packager, which meant that I would go to book publishers with an idea. And if they liked the idea, they would pay me and I would make it. And the book industry still permits that a little bit, but in the 90s, it was a really uh, useful industry for someone like me who's idea-driven to be able to make a living. Uh, well, it took me a while to understand, and I've written a lot about this, that people buy things based on what they believe. And trying to get someone to change what they believe is almost impossible. So I, who have a, an MBA from Stanford would go into these meetings with spreadsheets and proof and evidence that I was right. But that's not what people at book publishers wanted to buy. What they wanted to buy was a story. What they wanted to buy was an author that they'd like to do business with. What they wanted to buy was something to talk about at a cocktail party. And so no one wanted to buy my book, How to Hypnotize Your Friends and Make Them Act Like Chickens, which was one of my real projects at the beginning, wow. because they were embarrassed. And coming to understand that I don't need to wear a suit and I don't need to show up there with proof, but what I need to do instead is amplify belief. What I need to do is persuade myself first that it's a book I want to make before I go to somebody and say, will you partner with me? Uh, that one of the things that comes across, and so far we've mostly talked about execution and tactics with the Zig stuff, but one of the things that comes across is that selling is a transference of emotion. And what happens is if you're not willing to buy your own pots and pans, why are you expecting someone else is going to buy them from you? And it took me a while to find the humility, to find the confidence, 
to build the things I was proud of as opposed to just what I thought I could sell. So in your own work today, even as in, in, in history and today as a salesman, you said the word just a moment ago about amplifying belief. Do you find yourself in that arena, uh, giving your voice to those who have a belief you're amplifying it other than trying to awaken something that's not there, as you mentioned? Well, you know, my practice now, what I do for a living now is... I think two things. One, I notice things and try to explain them to myself and others. And two, I relentlessly pursue my belief that everyone is capable of making art, that everyone is capable of making a difference, and that we ought not to let ourselves off the hook by saying, well, that person was born a special way or got special privileges. I'm not qualified. That in the post-industrial world in which we live, if you've got a laptop, if you have enough money to be listening to this conversation, you are more powerful than you believe. And so my job isn't to teach people to close the sale with others. It's to teach people to close the sale with themselves. You are listening to The Ziegler Show and this replay of our interview with Seth Godin. Next, he talks about secrets of closing the sale, which I led the show with, a clip from that section. And he talks about how so many people can misinterpret it and look at it as, hey, these are ways to manipulate someone. And he says that is not the point. If you dig in and understand what Zig is doing, he's telling us how we can help truly serve someone. Wow. Okay. So on the topic of sales, um, you said a transference of emotion. I mean, you're, I appreciate greatly. You're an unabashed, proud salesman. You've spoken of Zig's book often. I've heard that, uh, secrets of closing the sale as having massive impact on you. And I heard you comment on the influence Zig had on you regarding the fear people have of saying yes when you sell to them. Uh, so the topic of sales, it's a, a admitted soapbox uh, of mine, somewhat to what you said, transference of emotion. And I like the word influence. Sales is influence. And we all desperately need that skill. Uh, it's one of the understandings that my parents gave me that I'm uh, immensely grateful for. So with that in mind, that we're all salespeople and daily engaged in the process of trying to sell to others, trying to influence others. Will you dissect that that you said, that issue of uh, the fear of uh, uh, people have of saying yes when you sell to them? How does this play out in the everyday lives that we all lead? Well, I, I want to insert a little square bracket here first, yeah. which is it is super easy to misread secrets of closing the sale. Really easy, and too many people misread it. It can be misread if you are willful as a way to manipulate people to doing what you need them to do. When I was 17, some kids came to my high school, and they were students, but they showed up at school one day, and they had just been to, I don't know, Super Tramp or some concert. And someone said to them, how many encores did you get off them? As if the purpose of applause at the end of a concert was to get a free song back mm. in exchange. How many did you get off them? That's not why applause was invented, right? Applause, applause is a generous gift. You don't do it to get something back. And the way I interpret secrets of closing the sale are a series of technologies and thoughts 
about how you can help people overcome their resistance to change so that they can get what they wanted all along. And we know, it's really easy to do the technology now, we know that before people say yes to something that they haven't purchased before, their heart rate goes up. They get nervous. That in a B2B setting, it's one of the scariest things that can ever happen is for you to spend somebody else's money to buy something for your company. It's not even your money. But you get scared because it comes with it the possibility of failure. I've done a lot of work in India and in Kenya with the Acumen Fund. And what we see among people who make 3 or $4 a day is that shopping is an alien prospect. You don't go shopping because when you make that little, you can't afford to be wrong. You don't go to the store and say, I wonder what's new because it's too risky. But that feeling of risk still happens to people in the rich world. That in the developed world where people have more money than they know what to do with. In the United States, we spend more money on self-storage units than we spend going to the movies. That's how big an industry we have of storing our own junk. Mm -hmm. We still get nervous before we say yes because we've been wrong before. So our job as salespeople is A, and A is more important than B, A is to bring somebody something that if they knew what we knew, they would buy it. And B, if A is true, to help them deal with the fear that comes from saying yes. I don't think I've ever heard fear talked about so much in regards to selling. It makes me think of my own kids as I try to influence them to do things that they have uh, fear of. That's, that's, um, that's a new well, perspective I need to be for re- me. I need to be really clear. Yeah. That's all there is in selling. If it wasn't, we'd just use Amazon, Mm. right? If there's no fear, go buy one click and get it cheap. The only thing we need salespeople for is fear. So again, back then to the aspect of Zig's quote, we are all salespeople. So in 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 our desires to influence people with a message that we have, a passion that we have, to realize that, to take that captive. And I, I, I think of myself as a sales uh, pro and expert. I don't think I've ever thought about it quite in this light. I'm helping people get through their fear. That, and you're saying that is the only thing for them to overcome. That's right. Because if we're not afraid, you know, when you go to ice cream, chocolate or vanilla, if you're an adult, you don't, there's no fear. You pick what kind of ice cream you want. And if you don't like it, you'll buy something else. It's not the end of the world. We need a salesperson to sell us a car yeah. because we're afraid. Mm-hmm. We're afraid we'll do it wrong. We're looking for deniability. We're looking for reassurance. We're looking for insight. That car and driver magazine is no longer sufficient to get us through the fear. We actually engage with the dealer. And that's one of the things that's fascinating about the internet meets used cars. It's because there are no salespeople. And the amount of anxiety that goes on is off the charts because there is no salesperson to help us understand our options and to gain the confidence we need to move forward. Seth, I just wanted to jump in here. When you were in Dallas <clears throat> a few years ago, you made the comment to me that the that we now live in the connection economy. That's right. Right. And the number one commodity of the connection economy is trust. And so the number one reason that people don't buy 
is lack of trust. Exactly. Right. And so trust, is that the antidote to fear? Well, I think the antidote to fear is creativity. Uh, People say I can't be creative because I'm afraid. But we also know that if you do something creative, you will become unafraid. I believe that trust has a sister named awareness. Trust and awareness go together. You don't get awareness from people talking about you unless they trust you. And when you get awareness, you get a chance to be trusted by new people. The way we make that cycle work is with generosity. So that if you are generous, repeatedly showing up in ways you don't have to, if you are generous and vulnerable and authentic and real over and over and over again, asking for little in return, you will become trusted. If you become trusted, you will gain more awareness. If you have awareness and trust, fear goes away. Because we can't make fear go away through reassurance, but we can make fear subside enough that the thing we want overcomes our fear of it. And those things are going to happen when we tell ourselves a story that we are doing something safe, that we are doing something trusted, that we are doing something that people like us do. So for me, the essence of marketing is one sentence. People like us do things like this. And what gets us to say that sentence is trust and belief that the tenets of that sentence are true. Okay. I use some different words, and I want to see how close we are. Sure. When we when we work with uh, people who are, you know, they're stuck. They you know they play that same old song in their head, and and that's all they hear. And and so what we say there's a sequence to a breakout, or there's a sequence to success. And we talk about hope, optimism, creativity, and then systems. And and so what happens is, is when we have a challenge, we all go straight to the system, the thing we've always been doing. Sure. We don't have any creativity, so no new ideas come in. And then our brain, like talk about the lizard brain, it goes into fight or flight, yep. right? We keep beating our head against what we were doing. We get the same results or we just give up and run. And so what we say is we've got to create hope. And that's what Dad did when he came on is immediately, you know, the fire of hope was lit into people. And so I'm seeing if there's a parallel between because really generosity creates hope too. I mean, if somebody is sure. despondent, being generous without any expectation of return, there's good in the world now. There's somebody who cares beyond themselves. Hope then leads to optimism, which unleashes creativity. Well, you know, I'm I love that hierarchy. I think there's a lot of strength to it. The one thing that we need to add is in almost all arenas, particularly business, the business, doing nothing is the most popular option. And the reason it's the most popular option is no one, I can't say that, few people get fired for doing nothing. That doing nothing is a narrative that we can tell ourselves that says, well, at least I won't have to tell the boss I did nothing. So I do nothing. And so there's that famous story. I don't think I heard it from your dad. I think I heard it from Ben Zander. It, two, two shoe salesmen go to New Guinea, and one writes back a note saying, situation's helpless, no one here wears shoes. Another one writes back a telegram that says, great news, no one here wears shoes. In fact, beyond it being a, a clever little story, it's probably not a good place to sell shoes. And the reason it's not a good place to sell shoes is that the best place to sell shoes is a place where buying new shoes all the time 
like Scarsdale, New York or L.A., is normal. That if people are buying shoes all the time, they have a shoe problem. And their shoe problem is they haven't seen the latest pair of shoes. That's a good place to sell shoes. Whereas if you try to sell shoes in 1800s in Papua New Guinea, the person's going to have to go home and say to his wife or say to her kids, I just spent the money I had for dinner on shoes. And they're going to say, what are shoes? And now the whole thing falls apart. So what we get to do as salespeople is we get to decide what we're going to sell and we get to decide who to sell it to. And my argument is better to sell things people want to buy. And what it is they want to buy is a certain sort of change. And some people want a change that involves fashion. Some people want a change that involves making more money. Some people want a change that involves, you know, relationships, whatever it is. But if you try to sell to someone who does not want change to happen, your work is going to be very, very difficult. The fact is, even Zig Ziglar had trouble selling life insurance. And the reason is most people don't want to buy life insurance. They're afraid. It just is a great picture, as I love Zig's commentary on sales. He helps us reframe that picture. But to focus on the person in front of me, again, whether it's my kids I'm trying to influence, whether it's somebody who I know can be helped by this health product that I have that they are suffering for a lack of, but to realize that they are sitting there and it's not my job to convince. It is my job to understand their fear and try to help remove that. That's a breath of fresh air. That's that's service. That's love. Exactly. Exactly right. Well, Seth, I was, as we talked about earlier, I was raised on Zig. My dad, Dan Miller, uh, wore the tapes out, I remember, in some bad times. I was, I was blessed to see him fail majestically a couple times. And one time, he, as a car guy, he was embarrassed as could be to be driving this, this jalopy that he was in and he had his little cassette tape player in the side beside him. And he's playing these tapes. I didn't totally understand it then. Uh, even to the point of uh, when I would misbehave, he would have, he and my mom would have me uh, go get an attitude adjustment, listen to Zig Ziglar tapes, which is, is really ironic that I'm now a fan and a voice for Zig and not mentally oppressed at the sound of his exactly. accent. Uh, but obviously the programming stuck, and that's, that's my point. So you were recently interviewed by Tim Ferriss. I actually did not know about the interview until I got a text from one of your uh, alternative MBA students, John Dale, who lives right here in town with me. Um, I know he'll be listening uh, to the. You can say hi to John if you want. He'll listen to this. Hey, John. <laughs> so he on the on the aspect of programming in your interview with Tim, you mentioned books that have profoundly influenced you, and the first you cited again was Zig's books. You said you listened to them so many times you wore out 72 cassettes, you had to buy another $500 set when you didn't have $500 to spend. So I have long been an advocate of less content in our so hungry for the next thing culture. Uh, Instead of grabbing for the latest and greatest, sticking with the fundamental foundational resources and repeating them till they change us. So will you talk about that, the need for repetition, the need for programming, and also comment on where you see this or the lack of this in our culture, what what it's doing when we are, we want the next bestseller, we want the next thing, and we don't do what you did, what you testified to, and listen to it till we own it. Well, as somebody who creates the next thing every single day, I have to speak up a little bit for the next thing. Okay. But um, let me try to describe this in two ways. Steve Pressfield talks a lot about the resistance. I call it the lizard brain. It's our hardwired desire to hide, 
to survive, to get revenge. In a civilized world, our professional job, our job as a professional, is to deal with all three of those things, not give in to them. Well, the socially acceptable way to give in to the resistance right now is is grooming your social media, keeping up with all the latest videos, making sure you're liking the right things, being liked by the right people, increasing the number of hits and this and that and the other thing. You can spend all day doing that and clearing your inbox and feel like you did a good thing. And that is what uh, you know, baboons do when they're picking fleas off each other. It is the law of the jungle, social grooming. And I'm a huge fan of not doing it at all. That if you're spending day after day going to the Rotary Club or the Chamber of Commerce thing just so you can shake hands with the same person that you shook hands with last month, you are hiding. And you are hiding by not doing something that could be criticized, by not doing something that matters, by not doing something that only you could have done. So what could you do instead? And I think you can do two things instead. Number one, as you said, is each of us can develop this ritual of figuring out the messages that need to be refilled and refilling them. Some people do that by meditating. Some people do that by listening to certain kinds of audiobooks over and over again. Some people do it by reading one chapter of a book every day. The fact is there's all these things in the outside world that are taking withdrawals, as Zig would say, withdrawals away from that account. They are criticizing you. They are rejecting you. They are tabling your proposal. They are telling you not right now. What are you going to do to refill it? And by having a practice of refilling it, you move forward. And the other thing you can do as a professional is really commit to the state of your art. You don't want to go to a doctor that hasn't been to a class since she graduated medical school 30 years ago. You want to go to a doctor who's totally up to date on her continuing education credits. You want to go to a doctor who's reading the right journals. Not someone who's clicking on BuzzFeed, but someone who's reading the Journal of Facial Reconstruction. Because it's hard to read that, and that's who you want. Well, I think that reading a dozen blogs, 20 blogs, 40 blogs a day to see what the people who you care about are saying is a worthwhile way to spend some time. But reading 200 or 2,000 doesn't do you any good at all because that's a form of hiding. So it's all about finding these middle grounds. And the last thing I'll say on this ritual thing is I have blogged every day for longer than I can remember, and I think everyone should. The act of blogging every single day, saying what you see, making a prediction, making assertions, making promises, so that you can come back and read them a month or a year later in public, is huge. This takes the goal planner times 100. Because if you have to do it, you will. And if you do it every day, you will discover an arc develops. Because you will say things in public that you are proud of, and then you will have to make them come true. And that reminds me of my day with Zig. Tom, what was it, two and a half years ago? No, he's he's been gone longer than that. Three, Four and a half years ago. Was it really? And he's, yeah. how many times did he repeat to me in that time period where he was repeating himself a lot and he repeated those core messages? Everyone needs to write a book. Everyone I, needs to write a book. I remember in the 80s when writing a book was hard. 
people would come in and he'd have a conversation with them and he would say, you need to write a book. And he would literally say, I don't care if it ever gets published and I don't care if the only people who read it is your family. You need to write a book. And it's and the blog, Seth, what you just said is the modern day version of that. That's right. If you, you know, on our website, when we have, we have a page called Why Ziegler and it's a video that we did of what he wrote in 1973, where he said, we believe. And there's these statements. And it's like every time you read one of those statements at the end of it, it's like they just played the Pledge of Allegiance and the Star Spangled Banner and everything wrapped around it is we all need to have that statement on our heart that says, I believe this. And I'm willing to tell people and stand up for it. And something happens to a soul when you say that out loud. And then, like Dad said in his book, See at the Top, he when he wrote the book, he was 40 pounds overweight. He wasn't going to publish the book. That's right, the book diet. <laughs> Nothing better than a book diet. As we speak of the power of blogs and books, I want to mention magazines and another wonderful Ziegler Show supporter, Texture.com. With Texture, you can get your favorite magazines electronically. Folks, there are many magazines I love to read, but I'm no longer willing to get a big magazine sent to me that I may enjoy for 15 minutes, then have to throw it away. Just feels archaic and wasteful. For less than the price of three magazines at the grocery store, you can get all your favorite magazines on your mobile device. For me, as soon as I saw they had Fast Company, Runner's World, Outside Magazine, and some others, I was sold. Even more so as a writer, they have a strong search feature, and I can search and curate topics for any content. Uh, the best part? Texture's offering Ziggler listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash Ziggler. You will gain unrestricted access to the world's best magazines from back issues to the one on the newsstands today. I now enjoy all my favorite magazines every month for less than the cost of three, and I don't kill any more trees. So go to texture.com slash Ziggler now and get your free trial. Texture.com slash Ziggler. So I have I have a question for you. I was uh, doing a live event, and I love Q and A. It's it's if I could do only Q and A, I would just do that. Present an idea, Q and A. And this was in Australia, and, and the guy asked me a question I never had before. And he said, "Tom, what's the fastest way to success?" <laughs> and so it struck me on stage in front of all these people. I'd never been asked that question. People want to know the three keys or the secrets or what can I do today. But the question was so simple, it may be the best question I've been asked because nobody wants the slow way, the hard way, right, the complicated way. They want the fast way. And so I just blurted out of my mouth, the fastest way to success is to replace bad habits with good habits. And so I've been thinking about it nonstop since then. And so I'm catching you on the spot. So... I mean, there's a lot of intricacies. You've got to define what success is, and, you know, you've got to have a platform to put it on. But it just struck me as that. I want to see what your take is on that. Well, I thought you were going to do that. I thought you, I thought you were setting him up to say, Seth. And so I, I, was, I was watching you, Seth. I, I thought, what was the first thing that came to your mind when he said, fastest way to success? What was the first thought that came to your mind? Yeah, what's here? here? What's the All right, so, so, yes, Tom was putting me on the spot. Good for you. I have two answers. Uh, the Buddhist answer is define success as what you have now, then you're done. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right? That 
you have this world, you have this life, you have this reputation. Call it success, make the best of it. Because if your goal is to get somewhere you're not, we need to think hard about why you want to get there and what you're willing to give up to get there. Hmm. So the first place I start is that thing that most of us have way more than we could ever imagine. And sometimes we're in such a hurry getting somewhere else, we forget how precious the things we have are. The second answer I have as a wordsmith is uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the fastest way to success looks an enormous amount like the slowest way to success. That shortcuts rarely are. And if they were, they wouldn't be shortcuts. They'd be the way everybody goes. That what we have discovered is that people who take shortcuts, who shave a little bit from their ethics, who hustle, uh, these people aren't happy and they're not successful. They're just looking for the next shortcut. But at the same time, the person who builds a platform based on generosity and trust and repeats it and repeats it, headed for a lifetime of it, is successful today and they're successful tomorrow and they're successful forever. That it's a huge mistake to define success in somebody else's eyes. Why would you give up control over that feeling? Why can't you decide what success is and not leave it up to somebody else? And if you decide that success is I am a trusted person who's capable of being generous and I'm going to do even more of it tomorrow, then I think you made it. Yeah, one of my, one of my friends uh, that I love, his name is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, I think you've mentioned him to me, but I don't think we've met. He's, he's uh, written several books, but he says this, opportunity seeks out the generous. There you go. I love that. And his explanation is so simple, and that is that when somebody brings you an opportunity that, and you like that person, but you know you're not qualified for it, to do it, and they say, do you know somebody who is? The first thought that goes through your mind is, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce them to this greedy, self-righteous, self-centered person, right? <laughs> the first thought that goes to your mind is, oh, no, we have a relationship of trust. That's right. I have to go find somebody who's going to respect that relationship, and the generosity is always at the top of the scale. Exactly. So, exactly. You know, Did- so I, I was in a, a little town before the age of, of smartphones. And I was on my way to someone's house and I wanted to bring flowers. And I pull into a card store. It's a little town. And I say to the person behind the counter, who is clearly the owner, hey, do you know if there's a florist near here? And the person in the card store said, no, I don't. Now, was she thinking that if I then believed there wasn't a florist, I would buy cards instead? Was this like a selfish ploy? Obviously, one block away, I passed a florist. This person lived in town. They owned a card store. Think about how much easier it would have been, how much more generous and how much more successful by every method she should, would have been if she had said, oh, yeah, my friend one block away owns a florist. I'm going to call her right now to make sure she's open. And then if she needed the money, she also could have said, do you want to buy a card to go with those flowers. Well, of course I would have said yes, because here's somebody who built a connection, not someone who lied to me. I got a question on something you just mentioned. I want to 
see if I heard correctly. You mentioned you said you said this term shave a little off the ethics comma and then you use the word hustle we're using the word hustle as a negative term yes happily um tell me more no one that i've ever met wants to be hustled that what we define what i define hustle as is someone who is invading your social or personal space in order to get you to say yes to something that isn't in your interest in the long run. And we've all been hustled. We've all, now there's that ridiculous thing going on online where people are making a sport of hustling other people. You know, someone listens to you on a podcast and then they send you a note saying, what's your favorite color? Well, what they're really doing is saying, oh, he'll write back and say blue. And then I'll be able to write to him and say this. And then back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then I'll be able to ask him for something because I'm hustling it. Right, they're not doing it because they actually have something in their heart. They're doing it because they can hustle the system. And as I said, I've never met anyone who wanted to be hustled. That's not what feels to me like a successful life or a way to make the impact that you seek. Thank you. Uh, this is a question that's just for my own personal use. As I heard you talk about your uh, enjoyment of making coffee. <laughs> which I'm a huge uh, fan of. I've been roasting my own beans for um, over a decade now, and I really, really enjoy enjoying coffee. I enjoy making it. I'm on a French press kick right now, and I just play with it. And yet you don't drink it. And my first thought was, who, who drinks it? Who gets it? Oh, um, if you come over, I mean, I make it for my wife every day. That I, make was, uh, that's I make it for okay. Maddie. Um, in my office, I make it for the people I work with. It just gives okay. me pleasure. Every once in a while, I'll taste it to see if I'm onto something. Unfortunately, my body and coffee don't really agree. I only have two speeds, and you don't want to see the other one. <laughs> <laughs> got, got it. Got it. Okay, so last night, I, I mentioned in a text to my dad that, uh, hey, the, the Seth interview was today, and he said, well, he said, he said, oh, shoot, I sent you some of Seth's because he knows I'm I'm a foodie. Admittedly, I, I love uh, coffee. I, I, I really appreciate uh, fermented grapes. I um, I like chocolate a lot. And he said, and I'm reading his text, he says, I sent you some of Seth's favorite chocolate and was hoping you'd have it before your interview with him. It, it's amazing. Uh, it was sent FedEx yesterday, so I won't have it. But uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it. Askinosi? As Askinosi is one of my favorite brands. Okay. It's run by a guy named Sean Askinosi, who is a generous soul. He is uplifting the lives of the people who grow the coffee, of the, grow the calco beans, their families. Uh, he does business in a way I wish more people would. And then if there's any money left over, he's busy putting kids in his town in Missouri who need help through school. And when I thought of starting a chocolate company, uh, there were two big reasons I didn't. One, the people at Rogue Chocolate make a better bar than I'll ever be able to. And Sean Askinosi is supporting his community better than I'm willing to because I won't get on the planes to the Philippines. So between those guys and my new friend uh, Robbie at Ritual in Park City, Colorado, and the people at Scharfenberger who keep flying the flag – there's a lot of bean-to-bar chocolate out there to be admired. So thanks for your dad uh, for supporting Askinosi and the work he's doing. Well, I'll, just so you know, I'll be sampling it for the first time, I guess, today or tomorrow. Um, 
and, and wasn't able to before this call. Well, on another similar tangent, which is personal, but as as I and so many others look to you for your perspectives on things, I'm going to ask this on a food note. So I am very involved personally in, in health and wellness and functional medicine is the terminology uh, focused on root causes and, and helping us be fully functioning, but it involves, and I have, I have always and continue to refine my own diet and I'm aware that you do too. So in your viewpoints, your, your, your personality, um, your, how your own body works, a question I often ask at my dinner table, because I'm really looking and hunting for people's viewpoints, their passions or lacks thereof is what's the, the birthday, the ultimate, the celebratory meal. Well, first, I want to commend everybody here to an ebook I wrote. It's free. It's called, it's about placebos. You can find it by typing my name and the word placebos into your favorite search engine. It's only about 30 pages long. Okay. Placebos are really important. Placebos work, they work better than almost any medicine known to man. Placebos make it so you cannot get an overdose, they have no side effects. We also know from recent research that placebos even work. If someone tells you it's a placebo, that they've done studies where doctors hand you some sugar pills and they say, these are sugar pills, they're a placebo, take them twice a day and your back pain will go away. And it does. So I am a huge fan of placebos and I have a lot of placebos in my diet. I get frustrated at people who pretend they are doing science when they talk about nonsense like free radicals and um, probiotics that clearly aren't being delivered in a format where the science can actually make any sense. So I'm all for it, but I go in with my eyes open knowing I'm buying placebos. And I'll just give you one little aside. Okay. I had a really bad cold. I get one about one a year. And I was one, had to fly somewhere to give a talk. I walked into a health food store and I said to the clerk behind the counter, look, I'm miserable. Do you have any placebos? And... <laughs> all right. She turned to the back and said to the owner, hey, Marsha, there's this guy up front. He wants placebo. Do we sell that brand? <laughs> so anyway. I, I smell a business opportunity right here for a new line of, a new line of supplements. A line of placebos. Absolutely. I think it would be really powerful. But anyway, the point is I eat what I eat when I want to eat it, and I don't need an excuse because I don't go off my diet. My diet's what I like. Haven't eaten meat in more than 20 years. I eat almost no fat. I don't eat gluten. These are all things I have chosen to do. And so when it's a celebratory dinner, mostly what it means is I'm not compromising for social reasons. I'm eating the stuff I always eat um, because it makes my body happy. Okay. All right. Family question here uh, in regards to Zig, but you already mentioned it, that you, I was going to ask, you have two sons. Do they know Zig, uh, and you said yes, they do. Is that uh, tell me? Tell me a little bit about introducing them. Yeah, I, I generally don't talk about my kids. Um, I would say that they're both uh, aware of him, but you know, we live in a totally different snack size, bite size age, uh -huh. and uh, most people coming up aren't going to listen to the seventy-two hours until they wear out. But the seeds have been planted. So why don't you check in with me in ten years, and I'll let you know. Okay. Beautiful. I will. Uh, likewise. So I, I want to hit this one. This was a, an important um, statement I heard. Again, I got to give credit to uh, the two, two and a half minute, just uh, 
bless the testimony you gave about Zig on the recent Tim Ferriss interview. And you said to him, you said, Zig is your grandfather, my grandfather, Tony Robbins' grandfather. None of us would be here if it weren't for Zig. That feels like a big statement. I mean, you, uh, again, are, are often cited in my circles, at least, as one of the, if not the most influential voice in business today. You're in your prime um, Zig has not been in his prime for a while, even though the message continues to grow like wildfire. But for you to say that statement to today and, and some of the past influential powerhouses, uh, people in the world, that's, that's significant. Where did, tell me more about that statement. Well, you know, I, I, uh, I spent a lot of time looking at history, thinking about history, the history as I understand it. You know, we start with Ben Franklin there's a, then there were a whole bunch of people in the 1800s who were pretty much charlatans. Uh, in the early 1900s, Dale Carnegie comes along, mm-hmm. surrounded by the titans of industry, the, the Andrew Carnegies of the world. And uh, he establishes a standard for what it is to be an ethical teacher of public speaking, salesmanship, being a significant member of the community. Carnegie turned it into a school and he gave hundreds and hundreds of speeches, but it wasn't something that most people could imagine doing. And then Zig was one of a few people in the generation after that who established that you could come to a town you've never been to before. 10,000 people would fill an arena. You could stand up in the arena, say what you believe, say the, the life you've been living, and not just motivate, but educate people in a different way of standing. And then on their way out, have them leave with this intellectual property that they could listen to over and over again. Well, you know, if you listen to early Tony Robbins, you hear Zig all over it. You know, for me, Tom Peters probably had more of the content for me. But to see that Tom, who's a friend, and that Zig, who was a colleague and friend, could do this meant that someone like me could do it, that someone like Tim could do it, that someone could decide that they would be a teacher without a school, a preacher without a pulpit, somebody who would show up and say, this is the way I see the world. What do you think? And as we've entered this post-industrial age, there are more and more platforms for the people who want to do this kind of teaching to teach. And can everyone do it? Of course not because we need people to be listening as well. But everyone can have their own media company. Everyone can teach something to someone. And when I think about the fact that Zig lived a life untouched by scandal, that was illuminated by generosity, that was consistent, you know, that Zig and I disagreed on so many social issues And he never let that get in the way of our relationship, and neither did I, because he didn't say there's only one way to be in the world. What he said is, here's my version of being in the world. Why don't you think about it and come up with your own? And that mindset, you know, combined with the rigor of a Tom Peters and the excitement of being on stage for either of them means that I get to do what I do for a living, and I can't believe I get to do it for a living, and every day... I'm grateful for all the people I'm stealing my stuff from. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. So Zig, foundation, motivation, inspiration. It's what we're busy at Ziggler today. 
trying to continue to further that fuel for taking action that he's so focused on. It's the crux of why I'm here today to help further this message. So you're well aware more so than I am, I'm sure of this microwave society that we're in that we can so easily sell the next 10 steps to whatever internet business success or how to write a book or any number of things. But we don't, we as a culture is what I see. And I, and I'm uh, guilty of this sometimes myself, don't want to do the deeper work, getting to the roots, the fuel. So in looking at Zig's passing, I, I don't see a veritable replacement for him to some degree. You mentioned the arenas, you know, the, the, the 50,000 people filling a stadium, which doesn't happen these days. So it's easy to say, okay, it's happening in other formats. It's happening online. It's happening through blogs and podcasts and, and what, but I don't see the focus, much focus on, again, that necessary fuel of motivation, inspiration, and encouragement. And I feel like we are, we want that pill. We don't want to do the deeper work. So I I ask you, uh, again, one of the the most influential voices in our culture today and in business and beyond, speak speak to us as a group, speak to the audience here of that need, that dire need that it feels like there's, again, a growing void of for fuel, for the inspiration, for the motivation, the deeper stuff before we get to the 10 steps to do whatever. Okay. Well, forgive me for disagreeing with you, but I got to start with this. Ed Sullivan's gone. He's never coming back. The Beverly Hillbillies are gone. They're never coming back. In fact, Seinfeld's gone and he's never coming back. That if we look at the monoculture of 1965, you know, Johnny Carson was viewed every night by 10 times as many people has watched The Tonight Show now 10 times. He's not better than the guys who are on The Tonight Show now. There's just been this huge fracturing. So the fact is Sheryl Sandberg has changed the lives of 5 million women, maybe 20 million women. But that doesn't mean it's everyone. It's a smaller market. The fact is that Tim Ferriss has an enormous number of people listening to his podcast, but it would be zero on any scale that we measured in 1966. Because we're talking about micro media. So I'm not hmm. despondent at all. When I look at the people who apply for the Alt MBA, the school I run now, um, you know, it's all online. It's not inexpensive. It's really hard. But hundreds and hundreds of people are doing it from all over the world, from every different walk of life. So the resources are there more than ever before because you can go listen to the story of, you know, Johnny the Shoeologist on YouTube. And it's there and people are finding it. But there's not just one story. There's 10,000 things to listen to. It's a long tale. I do believe that culturally we need a checkup from the neck up. I believe that culturally we are living in the safest, richest world in the history of mankind. And we're acting like it's the opposite. That the opportunity for us to take care of other people and teach other people has never been bigger. And yet we're acting like we got to lock other people out and take care of our own stuff. And that just doesn't wash with me. And I am pretty confident that if our teacher Zig was here with us, he would agree with me on this, that what we need to do is realize how fortunate we are, stop trying for more and start working for better. 
sounds like the next book title from Ziegler. Thank you for that <laughs> very, very much. You mentioned again, the alternative NBA, and I, I would just be ashamed if I didn't. Uh, so I just hired a, a, a personal assistant to a degree a guy to help me, Nick Bovey, uh, up here in Woodland Park. He's a, oh, he, sure. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing a lot with, uh, with you just came out of, I think, uh, uh, one of your alternative NBA type programs. Uh, yeah, it rings a bell. I don't teach it personally. That's part of the discipline of what I'm building. Uh, John Dale, who you mentioned, uh-huh. came to my office eight years ago. It feels like yesterday uh-huh. and lived in my office with eight other people for six months. I thought he was it, nuts. Yeah. It was awesome. It was yeah. free. I got more out of it than the students did. I couldn't do it again. It was too hard. Mm. This is different. This is online. It lasts for four weeks. It's not free. It's intense. Um, but we call it the Alt-MBA. The thing that uh, makes it work is for many of our students, it's the very first time in your life you're going to be surrounded by 100 other people who believe in you, who hold you accountable, who connect with you, who move as fast or faster than you do. And that's where change happens. You know, one day Zig said to me, uh, Seth, I don't believe I've ever changed the life of anyone when I gave a speech. But I think sometimes if I'm lucky, I give a speech and then they buy the tapes. And if they listen to the tapes and they listen to the tapes, then I've got a shot. Mm. And I feel the same way. I love giving my speeches, but I give my speeches as a chance to share (laughs) ideas and open the door. But it's habit that makes us change and it's dancing with fear. And most people don't sign up to engage with fear. So we need a system like a school that exposes us to fear in a way that causes us to change. So, Seth, the uh, the background story on the speech versus the uh, tapes, uh, you may have heard him talk about it, but he called his assistant, Miss Lori, who's now been with us 38 years. So this was 25 years ago. He said, Miss Lori, will you go in and read all the testimonials and tell us what is it that's causing people's lives to be changed? So she's a pack rat. She keeps everything. So she's dragging boxes into the conference room of of written out. This is before email. Sure. Thousands of testimonies. Some of my letters are in that box. Yeah. And and she comes back and she says, Mr. Z, there's too many to count. So they started weighing them. (laughs) Right? Now, this is when Dad passed away on Facebook, there were 13,000 comments that were pages long of people, sure. you know, just sharing their story. Um, but then he said, okay, well, why don't you read a bunch of them and see if you can find a trend? And literally it was in the 90 to 99 to one category of every person who had heard him speak. There was one whose life was changed, but 99 who took something home with them. Yep. And that's why the publishing of a book or a blog or whatever you do is so much more powerful than just the word because the word gets us inspired, but the habit of going back over and over again is what changes us. Exactly. And one of the problems with social media is you think you're improving yourself, but all you're doing is distracting yourself. I got to mention Lori. Um, Me too. She's awesome. Well, I got it. So, so for folks listening, when I sent the first email, I didn't want to fill your email box. I'm sure lots of people do. And uh, so I asked, is there an assistant, somebody I can, I can communicate with? You said, I don't have an executive assistant because Lori was taken. (laughs) 
I, I want you to know I shared that with her. What was it, Tom, yesterday or the day before? Yeah. Uh, and uh, she says, thank you so much. So. Well, I, I am 51, and she edited my first paper when I was 13. <laughs> wow. In, in, high school, in uh, junior high. And everything that I do that goes out goes through her first. Yeah, she's, she's pretty great. Well, so you've mentioned Zig and his accent before. So I heard you, and I quote, uh, you said the one time you got to work with Zig, you told him anytime he wanted you to stand in for him, you would, even with the accent. So is, is, do you have an impersonation within you? No. <laughs> Come on. All right. All right. All right. Um, is there, with so many of his uh, stories, so many of his teaching, would you, what would you say is the one that sticks the most, the one that replays in your own head the most? What was the story and why? Yeah, I, I want to reject the question because um, there is no answer. That's okay. I mean, you can see behind me thousands and thousands of books. You don't, you can't summarize thousands of books and say, just read the summary. Because if you could just read the summary, then you wouldn't need to read the book. And for me, learning, changing, is about crossing over chasms. And the facts are irrelevant. So I had personal interactions with the man that mattered to me. But what I want to encourage the people who are investing the time to listen to this to do is to understand that what a professional does is cross the next chasm on purpose. And it doesn't matter to me whether it's Zigu helps you across or somebody else. It's this decision to cross, to make the change happen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, hey, I've got a question then. I have no idea how much you charge for business consulting or if you even do much of it. But uh, Zero. Zero. I've never done business consulting, and I'm not about to start. Okay, how about a little guidance? I get free advice all the time, though. Thank you. I'm going to ask for some free advice. So as, I, as I'm here helping Tom lead the Ziggler uh, brand and company, with Zig being gone for over three years now, he's no longer writing books. Uh, producing content. He's not speaking from stage, literally. Um, we obviously have him uh, on various forms of media. But this has caused some aspects of Ziggler and the business to dwindle, yet we have some other aspects, Facebook, this, this podcast, uh, that are growing like wildfire Instagram that continues to grow. And as we sit and look at that, as I sit and look at that, and Tom and I talk about it, what do people need that we at Ziggler can do better. All right. Well, my expectation is you're going to want to take this part out of the podcast, but that's completely up to you. Okay. Um, there was a magical two or three decades where you sold a thing that a certain kind of organization and person needed and wanted to buy. You can't sell that thing anymore because he's not with us. And the, art, the market doesn't want to buy that thing the way it was anyway. So what we do when we buy something is we buy a story. That story has to fit into a box, a box that we can purchase. And that story is about the change we are seeking to make in the world and who we are buying it from. So when you hire Henry Kissinger to come give a speech 
It's not because you need to hear from an 85-year-old former uh, Secretary of State. It's because you, the organizer, want to demonstrate to the people in the audience that you could afford to bring the one and only Henry Kissinger into the room. That's what the Washington Speakers Bureau sells, not the speech. Because if you were selling the speech, you could just play it for free, right? It's the showing up in person. When somebody goes to the Dale Carnegie course, they may not even know Dale Carnegie was a real person. All they're buying is a transaction that takes them from here to there in the eyes of their boss. That they know that going to this thing is worth their boss's money because their boss told them it was. They can then bring home the fact that they went up that next step. So strategically, Ziegler's got to figure out, is there a methodology, a process, a certification, a tribal affiliation, a place, a transaction that you can sell to me where I am paying way less than it's worth and you're charging way more than it costs. The problem with measuring social media likes, et cetera, is you can't make a living doing that, that the math of selling sponsorships in a podcast is horrible. You've got to get to 10 million before you're going to be happy you have a podcast with you running ads. Instead, what it means to matter in this quickly moving world of so many voices is people like us do things like this. People aren't going to pay you because you have Zig's words. I can get Zig's words for free now. People are going to pay you because people like me are in the room with me. Because some certification that comes with it puts me with new people. Because when I look around, I can talk in the same language as other people who have been through it. Because if I can get my whole company to go from A to F with you, my company will be a better place. I can't buy a substitute from somebody else. And it's this idea of substitutes. The, the scarcity of today is different than the scarcity of yesterday. What's scarce now is attention. I don't need more content. I got too much. What's scarce now is trust. I don't need another voice telling me what to do. I need a process that's proven that I know I'm not going to be wasting my attention on. So you have tons of resources to build that, but it's not going to look like it was. It's not going to be, how do I get Zig's word out there? Because guess what? There are 5 million of us who have a warm place in our heart. That's enough by a lot. The question is, what tribal community impact do you make so that each of us would rather pay the 10 or 100 or 1,000 bucks to be insiders than have the penalty of being outsiders? What does it mean to be an insider at Ziegler? Because that's what you have to sell. Thank you uh, for that free advice. Uh, worth what it costs. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth a lot. We'll be talking about that later. I got two more questions for you. One is just your latest book, I believe, uh, What to Do When It's Your Turn, which uh, I'm pretty sure I got in my mailbox from John Dale, uh, again, to call him out, uh, which, folks, you can get that at yourturn.link. Um, tell us about that book. Um. Here's a copy. Nope, that's not it. Hold on. Here it is. Here's the Romanian copy. Oh, but I'm not on video. I'm on audio, so I don't even need to show it to you. All right, here's the deal. I'm holding the Romanian copy in my hand. Can you hear it? Uh-huh. And I illustrated it myself. I designed it myself. 
and I wrote it myself, and it's a book for people who don't finish books. It is a book designed to be purchased more than one at a time. In fact, I do not sell single copies. You can buy three, and I'll send you five, or you can buy 96, and I'll send you 120, or anywhere in between, because I want people to hand it to other people and say, here, read this. Because if you and your colleagues are on the same page, you will support each other, and you'll get the joke together. And I launched it a year and a half ago, and it's been back to press. I'm going back to press today for the fifth time. Uh, and I, the only place to buy it is from me. Maybe you can find a used one on Amazon. But um, I am super proud of the impact it's making because I decided to publish for groups as opposed to publish for solos. We, uh, we did that as a company. I can't remember. You were selling them. Was it a 12-pack? or? That's right. Yep. So we bought a 12-pack, and we went through it together. Uh, we all read it, told our favorite stories out of it related to our culture or what we were trying to do. So it's definitely a book that you share with only the people that are important with, to you. That's my disclaimer. Only okay. give it to those you care about. And the next time you need 12, don't buy them. Just call me and I'll ship them. <laughs> I'll mention this in the intro that I will record shortly, but yourturn.link, that's where you get that book. Uh, Seth, Last last question, if I can ask this, um, Zig and, and Tom today and Ziggler is so focused on legacy. And I know that's a big word and a big question, but as you look at your work, what is the legacy that you would hope would be said about you? Uh, you know, shortly after Zig passed, I thought about this and uh, I'm sticking with my answer, which is I would like to be measured by what the people who learned from me taught other people. Okay, friends, there you have it. Seth Godin, his insight, his tribute to Zig. You can follow Seth anywhere and everywhere. Just search for him on any platform and you will find him at the top of the heap. Coming up in episode 922 of The Ziggler Show, we're going to talk about what we do to prepare for when tragedy strikes, which may not sound like fun, but honestly, I feel it's arrogant to expect something bad won't happen to me. And it's my responsibility not to be pessimistic, but to be preparing myself today and every day to overcome, to be able to overcome anything that may come down the road to the best of my abilities. So listen in to the episode and you'll hear what others say of what they are doing to prepare as well. Till then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together 